Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Hadi Hosseini. I'm Chris Rose. And this is a new installment in our new series, Continuity and Transformation in Islamic Law. Uh, you can find other related episodes in the series on our website. Today our guest is Sami Ayoub. Sami, welcome to our podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, he is a lecturer at the Department of uh, Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. He has finished his dissertation recently at the University of Arizona, titled We Are Not in Kufa Anymore, The Construction of Late Hanafism in Early Modern Ottoman Empire, 16th to 19th centuries. It's an important addition to our series, um, discussing what continued and what was transformed in Islamic law during the Ottoman Empire. So what is the relationship between the Hanafism and the Ottoman states? Uh, so uh, so that's a good question, and this is central to my own research and my dissertation. Um, so in my work, I try to uh, capture how late Hanafi jurists, and I will come to to. Uh, to describe what they mean by late Hanafism in, in a minute. So how the late Hanafi jurists were able to uh, respond and imagine the the role of the sultan and the increasing centralizing power of the Ottoman state in the legal works. Um, and the relationship uh, 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 is very complex in, in, in nature. So in my research, I focus on a specific question, how Hanafis refer to the Ottoman Sultan in their legal discourse. And the legal discourse, I mean their mitun, shuruh. The mitun is legal manuals, shuruh is legal commentaries, and fatwa literature. And uh, uh, so how they talk to and talk about political power. Uh, so late Hanafism started around 13th century and uh, so basically in the Mamluk uh, and continues until the Ottoman period. And late Hanafism is not a title that I impose on these figures. It is a self-identified uh, uh, epithet that they used to refer to themselves. Uh, for example, they say, uh, they use the, uh, the following phrases to, to refer to their uh, true opinions. Ajma' al-Muta'akhirun, the late Hanafis uh, uh, um, has a consensus on, had a consensus on. اختلف المتأخرون the late Hanafis disputed عامة المتأخرين the, uh, uh, most of late Hanafis بعض المتأخرين some of late Hanafis كثير من المتأخرين many of late Hanafis المختار عند المتأخرين the, uh, the, uh, the preferred opinion according to, to late Hanafis شواذ بعض المتأخرين uh, the, the opinions that, is, uh, that, are out, uh, that are not within the boundaries of the opinions of the late Hanafis أكثر المتأخرين many of late Hanafis etc etc so this self-identified epithet with regard to their own identity and their opinions and their consensus is very different feature uh, that 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 is uniquely found in that later period. Uh, uh, but but for me, I think uh, uh, I try to make the argument in my research that the father of late Hanafis is Ibn Nujayim al-Hanafi al-Masri, who died um, in 1562-63 or 970 Hijri. And he is a key personality in everything uh, that comes later with regard to the authorities that actually Hanafis after that come to, to refer to, or even with the emergence of the Majalla, the first Ottoman and civil court, his, his key figure really constructing and building that, uh, that, late, uh, that late authority. Um, uh, so, so, so that's one key aspect. So how late Hanfis point to the legal authority in their legal works, and hopefully in the questions I can yeah. elaborate more um, on this. I was wondering actually, like talking about the late Hanafis, um, and um, you somehow uh, mentioned that by that you mean 
the Mamluk era and particularly the Ottoman period, uh, ulama or scholars. Um, were there any ijma among themselves? Like, what was the term referring to? Um, if a 16th century scholar talks about, or do they talk about mutakhirun, um, meaning probably like the earlier period, um, late Hanafis, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or like when a 20th century scholar is talking about mutakhirun, do they have different meanings in their mind that's when they're talking question. about that? Okay, so uh, okay, so so that's great. So. Uh, so late Hanafi scholars, so the uh, the famous Indian scholar, his name is Abdul Hay Luknawi, or Laknawi. He uh, he died in the late 19th century, and he has and he wrote a history of the Madhab himself, and it is the, and he argues that there is no specific cr- uh, criteria by which that we know who is exactly late and who is exactly early, uh, but he mentioned the following ideas, for example. He, uh, so he mentions early Hanafis are those who are simply so. Uh, Abu Hanifa uh, uh, and his disciples uh, and those the late Hanfis are those who did not see them or or, or study with them it's one opinion other version uh, that he uh, says that the late Hanfis are those who came after the uh, the uh, the 10th century uh, and he refers to a specific individual in this regard, which is Al-Imam um, Al-Hulwani uh, or Hulwai. We don't know exactly his name is, and he died in the in the 11th century, uh, so early um, uh, 1063. And he is the considered to be the mark between the late and the uh, and the early. In Western scholarship, uh, Peter Johansen, he teaches at Harvard Law uh, in Harvard. Uh, University, he he argues that uh, that uh, what he calls modern Hanafis started in the 11th century, but anyway, so but but my own observation to be to see a consistent reference to a set of jurists, a community of jurists, call themselves late, and we actually can see that in the text as referred to themselves as such starts from the Mamluk and uh, an Ottoman period. Okay. So really, so really, it depends to whom you're talking to with regard to who uh, who's early and who's late. So in my research, I uh, I refer to late in terms of how they identify themselves as such. Uh, but I'd like to uh, say something very briefly here. The distinction, the difference between Hanafis that exist in the, uh, the late Hanafis that exist in the Mamluk and Ottoman period is also important. Late Hanafis that exist in the Mamluk period, they did not, they uh, do not, they just laid a role for the the, the state or or uh, or uh, legislation from the state. Okay, the okay. So the only relationship should have existed in the Mamluk period that allows certain uh, uh, role for the state in the Mamluk period is just the issues of the Siyasa Sharia, which is the discretionary power of the of the Sultan to engage uh, criminal punishments uh, that he sees fit for the public Muslim community. Nothing else. In the in the late Hanafis that exist in the uh, in the in the Ottoman Empire, we see a whole different reality. We have massive increase of reference to to the state. Uh, for example, number two, we we see an actual references to sultanic edicts in the legal discourse for the first time in Islamic history. Number three, we see certain work that is consistently being quoted uh, in the throughout late Hanafis of the Ottoman Empire, which is that works called Ma'arudat Abu Saud Effendi, or, or or this is legal opinions by Abu Saud, who was a major figure in the empire. But these Ma'arudat were sanctioned by by, uh, by Sultan Suleiman the first, who ruled in the 16th century. And this and, and that work was quoted consistently by late Hanafis in the Ottoman Empire till till the 20th century. 
so. and that's a major difference that we can see between this type of late Hanafis in the Mamluks or late Hanafis exist in the Ottoman Empire. Okay, so there is also a distinction between the late Mamluk scholars and the Ottoman scholars. While both could be, like, could be uh, defined as mutakhirun, we will still see some differences between the Mamluk period and the Ottoman period scholars, right? Regarding their uh, the relationship of the Sharia and the state, or the their relation their relationship regarding the involvement of the sultanic edicts within the Sharia. That's correct. That's correct. Uh, it, it just in, in the Mamluk times, we didn't see that visibility of the state in the legal discourse itself. We don't see. Okay, so all Hanafis assert that the Sultan has the Siyasa Sharia uh, uh, jurisdiction, uh, and they were firm that clearly, which continues in the Ottoman Empire. But with the with the Ottoman Empire, the Hanafis engaging a whole different level of the state. They came to a certain conclusion. I'm making the argument in my research that that we see a turn and Hanafi legal culture that allows the state for the first time to be a part of the lawmaking process itself. Okay, let me say something here. The fundamental function of law, how, how I see it, is to maintain political order and social cohesion, number one. Number two, uh, 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 the way I see how Islamic law functions historically is that uh, um, uh, is that the is that the late Hanafis, for the first time, talk about the state vividly. So, 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 so talk about the Sultan, al-Dawla al-Aliyya, al-Sultan al-Aliyya, al-Dawla al-Turkiyya, al-Dawla al-Thmaniyya. And then they say, وَرَضَ amr مِنْ مَوْلَانَ sultan A legal edict came from the Sultan that we have to apply it by it. And even the actually, so some of the secondary literature talk about that Muslim jurists never, uh, or they actually intentionally chose not to engage the state edicts whatsoever. Yet, see these people referring to the the, the Sultanic Qanun as al Qawanil in their legal discourse. So it's just to see that that uh, we have a different reality in which the Hanafi jurists in the Ottoman Empire they try to capture, or try to engage with, rather than saying that those guys are passive and the state is, is trying to impose something on them. Uh, I see the legal discourse as a whole is being transforming itself with regard to the new ways in which the Ottoman Empire is ruling so, uh, in that region. So in this regard, um, how do we probably re-evaluate the Qanun and the Sharia uh, difference or dichotomy? It, that dichotomy has been um, discussed by the Ottomanists and particularly by um, Ottomans, legal historians of, of um, the Ottoman Empire how the jurist, the Hanafi jurist, could somehow accept a parallel, of, if, if there was a parallel mm-hmm. uh, legislation, um, with a good example would be the existence of the Kanun Namaz, mm-hmm. uh, which has a different criminal legislation, right. which we do not see in the Sharia manuals. Um, so how... how the late Hanafis um, somehow deal with that or incorporate it uh, within the Islamic law? Okay, the, okay, so that's a good question. So in my research, I, uh, I'm, I'm making the argument that it is untenable anymore to make the argument that Islamic 
legal authority is epistemically divorced from political authority. I think it, it is very, very difficult to make this argument in the later development of Islamic law, number one. Number two, with regard to the Qanun, so the Qanun is the Ottoman dynastic law, and, and it is known in the Hanafi legal literature as Al-Qawani al-Uthmani, and, uh, and, 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 it is, um, and it was a set of edicts, uh, um, regulations, practices of the state, that part of it were, uh, was codified and uh, um, uh, and written down and used to call, as you mentioned, Qanunama. And it was a product of a negotiated effort between Sharia, custom, and the um, uh, and the Qanun. Okay, so so the question is, I don't see, uh, in the modern scholarship uh, or, or the contemporary scholarship, uh, some of the endeavors was about to brand the Sharia as, as, as sacred and brand the Qanunama as um, as secular, and this dichotomy is imposed on it. I don't think that that uh, the, the Hanafi jurists or or the Ottoman Sultan perceive these of these different variations of of legal uh, of legalities in that form. Uh, what I see is uh, is the Hanafis, uh, late Hanafis in the Ottoman Empire, recognized the different ways in which these two forms of laws are produced, and different ways of which they are both legitimated. Okay, so what that means, I mean by that is that, that the Sashir Sharia gave the Sultan uh, the power and the authority to engage in some sort of uh, discretionary powers to issue criminal punishment here and there and be able to do that in the name of the Sharia, not, uh, not in opposition to it. So what we see today, people try to... In, to engage the the Qanunama and say the Qanunama is really is major differences between it and the Sharia and 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 what the Sharia ascribed, but but really I think this is two different things that people historically saw them in two different lines, not necessarily secret versus secular, but in terms of different ways of. Uh, of legality that uh, that both negotiated certain local customs that we're trying to engage with. There's. Uh a uh, recent, I think, again, re-evaluation of uh, Ottoman law um, in the perspective of the centralization of the administration. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be the, the bureaucratic administration, it could be legal administration. When, like, related to our discussion um, is the debate about um, what was the role of the judge? So, the judge and now the muftis um, are now during the Ottoman Empire appointed mm-hmm. um, by the Sultan, mm-hmm. uh, by the central state, That's right. and uh, therefore they get their legitimacy um, through the appointment by the Sultan. Mm-hmm. Um, it we have many questions probably related to that. The one in my mind is um, how did that play into? the decision-making process of legal scholars when they were um, actually making the law. Uh, uh, in the last decade or so, significant research has been done on the Ottoman court archives and people try to reconstruct social history of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and, and this is very important and, and much needed. The problem is, if you do such research and focus primarily on how the judges and how the courts functions in order to pass judgment of how the legal discourse itself used to function, I think it's a whole different question. So we are now, people engage the courts in that manner are actually very much 
uh, thinking uh, uh, in modern terms. Uh, it just has very much uh, uh, preoccupied by modern sensibilities. We think of the court today as a place where the law is made, but this is historically not, just not to be the case. The law is made, uh, uh, used to be, be made in the madhab, in the legal discourse when the judge, even if when being appointed by the sultan, has to be uh, cited in his uh, appointment letter that he has to abide by the preponderant opinions of his legal school. That's number one. Number two, uh, uh, there was a controversy with regard to that now the state is appointing uh, not just judges, now muftis as well, okay? Uh, uh, and that should be acknowledged, it should, should be known. But it just people try to make the argument, some researchers try to make the argument that the state is intervening in the legal discourse by the sheer appointment of a chief uh, mufti in Istanbul or by appointing muftis in the provinces. And, uh, and, and that's an interesting point. But the problem is the following. The problem is, if, if you try to, uh, and this might give us insights, by the way, uh, of how local customs, especially in the imperial capital, used to work. But the problem is the following. that This can be easily challenged. Because if you see Hanafi legal works from non-appointed muftis and, and non-appointed uh, jurists, we still find the Ottoman state is very prominent in their work. So for me, I'm making, uh, uh, also my research, I make the argument in the following, that if we need to study how late Hanafism responded to the Ottoman state, we need to look at the, at the, uh, the trajectory of the Ottoman, uh, of late Hanafism as a whole. I think there's a larger shift in the legal culture of Hanafis as a whole that came to recognize the state to be indispensable to, to the lawmaking uh, process. This does not mean that they have to be all the time apologists for the state. The Ottoman Hanafis have a long history of opposing abusive practices by the state. For example, for uh, from preventing farmers from traveling if they have to uh, work in the land in the provinces. This has been challenged by uh, most of the uh, Hanafis uh, that exist in the provinces, especially in Egypt or Aleppo and, and Palestine. So, 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 uh, we, uh, so the judge is important uh, and should be studied uh, 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 in terms of their increasing role in the empire. But I think it would be wrong to use the Ottoman court archives to pass judgment with regard to how the legal discourse itself used to function, because this is missing the point uh, uh, with how the legal system itself used to function. Um, okay, but regarding the jurists or the, the muftis, you mentioned that there were like non-official muftis uh, or jurists who were probably as prominent as the official ones um, who would in the legal discourse, in the development of the legal discourse um, in the Ottoman Empire. Um, Let me just uh, say a, a very brief interjection here. So I see Islamic law as a semi-autonomous system, uh, a semi-autonomous legal order. And, and what I mean by that is that, of course, Islamic law is influenced by politics, of course, influenced by historical events, social dilemmas, and all of this. Yet at the end of the day, it is a community of jurists who came to decide either to accept, adapt, or suppress uh, such a change. So when I focus on the jurists and focus on the legal discourse, it comes from my understanding of, of, of how legal order works. A historical perspective or sociological perspective or anthropological perspective will emphasize uh, uh, more in terms of... So they see law as mainly social phenomena that has no agency of its own and, uh, uh, and, uh, 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 or has no autonomy or structure. Uh, uh, and uh, I'm... Uh, skeptical of the approach uh, uh, that it will render uh, an accurate understanding of how really Islamic law used to work historically. 
we we talked about precedents, right? Um, yes. That um, you're thinking about like the um, development or creation of legal discourse, and that's not done in the mahkama. Rather, um, it's done by legal scholars. So it's like Islamic law is known to be a jurist-made law. Um, but precedence comes um, as a significant concept when a jurist is making a decision or uh, answering a, a, a question to a mustafti, then he would probably and most probably, as we, as we see all of this fatwa compilation of the period, they refer to the earlier legal scholars. That's right, of course. Um, so that bring, uh, brings us to, I think, a next level um, in um, our discussion. And that is, so how do we define ijtihad? Is it only um, like picking one opinion against the other of the earlier Hanafi juries? Or you can come as a mujtahid with absolutely a new legal opinion, which probably didn't have any precedence, related to this old discussion of the closure of the gate of ijtihad, of course. I see, I see. Okay, so in the legal discourse, um, to be authoritative, I have to tie myself uh, or uh, uh, to be able to um, uh, to appeal to a higher authority than myself. Okay, I'm only authoritative as a Hanafi jurist if I take the opinions of Abu Hanifa seriously. Uh, so the madhab, uh, so so I can be be a member or 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 participant in the madhab. So yes, in that period we can see um, to use Freeman Jackson's uh, term legal scaffolding and. Uh, of course, the opinions of early Hanafis are very important to late Hanafis in the sense that, that they actually build upon it, okay? They choose to uh, to abandon it, of course, um, and they can build the new opinions. But the issue is, to be a Hanafi at that time period, what makes early Hanafis and late Hanafis within the fold of Hanafism, or the field of, of the Hanafi school, is not the shared opinions. Rather, uh, to agree on the structure of authority in the school, to... To conceive of Abu Hanifa to be the absolute mujtahid and to think about law how he thought about it, okay? Not necessarily to adopt his opinion necessarily. Let Hanifi disagree with Abu Hanifa so many opinions, yet he is still the authority of the madhab that you have to appeal to first and then you can get in, engage your own opinions. So, yes, so, so, so in that period we can see a lot of legal change with major opinions actually shaped key, transform, key trans, uh, transformative uh, policies about the state. Uh, the Ottoman state, mainly uh, the most famous of them was the uh, the change of the nature of the Ottoman lands from uh, from private property to be state property by uh, the famous Ibn Nujayim al-Hanafi al-Masri. So, and, and this was just not, uh, and this was not just a mere fatwa, this has really uh, caused significant change of how the whole uh, idea of uh, property and wealth, um, issues of authority, really uh, shifted most uh, of these ideas in the madhab, especially in that later period. So yes, of course, we can talk about jihad, but within the context of the madhab, within the context of understanding of the uh, the hierarchy of authority within the Hanafi school. So the madhab is still, um, during the early modern period, capable of coming with new um, solutions um, to the social and political questions that we see around, right? Um, we've, t- we've talked a lot about early modernity and the uh, um, relationship between the late Hanafis and the Ottomans um, as uh, a relationship between legal scholars and the state. Um, I'm 
I want to um, ask actually another question about the social aspect of this transformation. So we ha we ha we see a transformation in the relationship between legislation and the state authority. But what about the social life? What kind of examples or what kind of questions came in the life of ordinary citizens or subjects in different places of the empire that went into a different like went through transformation in this period? Rather, I mean, besides the, of course, the relationship between the state and and the jurists. Hmm. If I, if I understand you correctly, so one of the major questions that uh, that wasn't really uh, a source of complaints among many of ordinary uh, citizens uh, or ordinary subjects for the empire was the issue of uh, the uh, the wives uh, whose husbands used to serve in the Ottoman army and this husband never came back. Uh, even after a few years. And this is, you can see that repeatedly in many of the fatwas. And uh, the early Hanafi opinion on this issue is that she has to wait until the, uh, to know that he's for sure died uh, in, in battle, until his uh, his peers died. So basically she has to wait at least, at least 70 years or so to make sure that he died. And his death is not a simple issue. His death will actually bend upon, uh, upon uh, the inheritance, uh, shares of Well, they'll be distributed and other issues uh, with regard to her own marriage to somebody else and things like that. So the Ottoman Sultan and the late Hanifis in that time period, the Sultan issued issued a ruling saying that uh, a famous farman that uh, uh, that is going to be only 14 years uh, that they allow um, someone uh, to be declared to be lost in war. Uh, 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 only for that time period, and they circumvent all the Hanafi early Hanafi discussion on this issue entirely. Um, the second issue was about the issue is, is called statue of, uh, um, uh, the statue of limitation, uh, which is the ability of, you, uh, of a person to uh, to file a claim in, in front of a court, and the Hanafis uh, used to uh, have different variations on, on on this issue. The Ottoman Sultan issued a ruling says it's only 15 years from the uh, uh, the occurrence of of any uh, of, of any case that you have the ability to go to the court and claim certain rights and certain. Uh, Which is another, and this was a major issue. Why? Because people used to go to court after 20 years to claim certain rights to an endowment money, for example, and be able to claim certain uh, to be they are the they are the beneficiaries of certain uh, endowments here and there. So the Ottoman Sultan came and uh, and issued a ruling uh, to to say that you cannot do that after 15 years. The point here is that we can see the Sultan talking about, really all that talk about the Sultan exists in the legal literature itself. This is in the authoritative Hanafi legal commentaries and uh, 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 in that time period. I'm not reading a state manual in that regard. I'm reading an actual mutun in which being studied by the students who are studying Hanafi school, uh, by students who, who, who are uh, going to the madrasas, and those who are um, uh, being trained to be judges and muftis and, and things uh, Of that, uh, of that sort. So really what we're talking about, a major transformation of how late Hanafis came to understand of the authority and the ability of the state to be part of the legal discourse. And and uh, again, I'm not saying this was uh, very, um, uh, um, very extensive, but I'm saying is that, that Hanafis allowed certain limited space for the, uh, for the state to really engage uh, uh, in the lawmaking process itself. 
In order to clarify on that, actually, that's quite fascinating to see how you regard the like what others probably would call as a state intervention. You probably regard as a very um, organic part of the Hanafi legislation. I mean, I refer to the uh, Sultanic decrees and edicts. Were there any late Hanafi scholars who resented actually the fact that the state legislation or the legislative function of the Sultan was recognized by the by like other late Hanafis? Was there any uh, tension or debate between the, the late scholars about to what degree um, they should recognize this new role of the state in the process of legislation? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, okay, that's great. So they do not really um, approach the issue from this angle, okay? They don't talk about uh, uh, an abstract theory of how the state should be part of legal discourse. Rather, what we can see Hanafi's doing, they're actually engaging directly by uh, by quoting sultanic orders, specific times and dates, uh, saying that, that the sultanic edict was issued in that time, uh, and, we or, and, and we are ordered to follow it, okay? And they follow it uh, in their uh, in the legal discourse. There was tension, of course there was. Uh, some people, some, some Hanafi Jews protested this. But at the end of the day, the, the dominant uh, consensus that came out from that time period is that the Hanafis across across the empire, especially in the Arab provinces, who those are not appointed by the state, clearly refer to the Ottoman Sultan uh, and his decisions. They keep in mind, even in the ways in which they engage the legal discourse itself, the Sultan is there. Uh, so whatever the Sultan says, what's his authority here? And the ways in which they actually uh, that they, um, represent the Sultanic authority is as follows. Okay? So they say uh, uh, that the Ottoman Sultan settled this issue. right? So, so the state comes as the, uh, the party who settles just disputes among the Hanafis. Or uh, the Sultan issues a ruling or issues uh, an edict, which is the final reference for judges and for the jurists, and, and everybody has to just follow it without really discussion of the of the nature of that ruling. So that is unprecedented, right? That that level of the recognition of the state. Uh, I believe so. I believe that, that really we, we cannot find that language uh, uh, in any legal uh, manual uh, pre-Ottoman uh, times, even among Hanafis that exist in the Mamluk period. Do you know anything about uh, contemporary Iran or India or let's... Um, say like the Safavids and the Mughals of the, like that early modern period will the um, Safavids go with a different uh, legal school um, and we we know that the Fatawa Hindia or Alamgiriya was by then um, being compiled in the 17th century India under Aurangzeb um, how was the dialogue between the let's say Middle Eastern quote unquote and non-Middle Eastern Hanafi scholars um, on this particular issue, on the recognition of the uh, sultanic intervention? Um, uh, To be honest, I'm not a 
familiar with uh, how the how the Indians, uh, the Indian Hanafis were, uh, were engaging in the question. But the familiar that late Hanafis are very much interested in the Fatawa Hindiya. They, they quote it frequently. They're very much among the uh, the library of any jurist has to have Fatawa Hindiya. And they praised so much in, in, in the Hanafi discussions, not because it's a good scholarship, which it is, but also uh, it's also a state project as well, right? Okay. So, 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 it is, uh, so they don't necessarily uh, articulate that as such, but you can feel that, that that any Hanafi jurist in the late Hanafis has to have Fatawa Hindi among his works. They quote it frequently. They engage with its legal discourse, and uh, it's very authoritative for them as well. So, so, so uh, that's I'm familiar with, but I'm not familiar really how they engage the state in their own local context, for example. Yeah, that, I mean, that looks to be like the first canonized, probably, uh, work in the Hanafi school. I mean, we have a lot of fatwa compilations being. Uh, circulated in the Ottoman uh, Empire, but that was like a state project, right? Like with um, a lot of scholars be being commissioned mm-hmm. to to do that. so to that level of organization and the involvement and sponsorship of so. the the head of the state that looks to be to be the first, and that that probably would take us to our next chronologically our next period, and that's the modern times. Mm-hmm. So. When we call the Mutaakhirun or the late Hanafis, do we mean also like the 21st century uh, Hanafis too? Because that, I mean, in between what happens is the um, introduction of the Majalla, which you have worked um, on it, and uh, the debates that we have about modernization and like what makes modern times different than early modern times mm-hmm. regarding the issue of legislation. Okay, so so uh, in the modern times, we don't find uh, the state, uh, the the Madhab authority to be central to the ways in which uh, the state engages issues of law, for example. Um, but but with the Majalla, um, so the Majalla is the first uh, uh, Muslim civil code which was supervised by the Ottoman state. Uh, those who so those who were able to uh, work on the Majalla and be uh, and be part of its creation. Some of them were actually state official themselves. Um, yet also we have also uh, some scholars and some uh, muftis on that committee. Uh, briefly, we had Shaykh al-Islam at the time. Also briefly, we had uh, the Ibn Abidin. Uh, so, so, so we see that uh, that uh, that type of mixed participant uh, on the Majalla Committee uh, to be kind of interesting. Uh, I've never seen that before in relation to uh, other projects, for example, which many of them were supervised by the state, but not state official themselves engaging in the legal discourse. Okay, so so the arguments that, that has been presented in the field is, is the Majalla is, um, is mainly a faithful synthesis to late Hanafi tradition, yet people, because they, uh, the Majalla is arranged in, in a way of the code, uh, this has been taken to mean that this is mainly a westernized form of Islamic law that, been, uh, that tried to imitate uh, Napoleon Code. Okay? Um, and the problem that such argument just overlooks the nature of how legal change occurs or how legal transformation occurs. The problem is the, the Magella cannot exist without depending upon an articulation with legal genres that exist in the Hanafi tradition itself, number one. Number two, the Majalla drafters themselves never claimed that the Majalla is a, uh, is a westernized form of the, uh, uh, of the French code or, 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 or a westernized form of Islamic law. Instead, what they argued is that the Majalla is, is an Islamically 
uh, informed response to the uh, um, uh, to the encroachment of Western laws in the heart of the Ottoman Empire. Now, inside the Ottoman Empire, if you are a citizen from certain uh, uh, European countries, you're no longer subject to the Ottoman law, and started. Uh, uh, and the trade uh, agreements between the Ottoman Empire and the Europeans had to do had to do w- w- with different legal systems. It just was certain an anxiety about how the Ottoman Empire will respond to the increasing encroachment of of, of European legal codes of the, uh, uh, inside the empire. And the Magella was a response to such. Uh, to such uh, uh, development, and of course, it come within the Tanzimat period as well. Uh, it just was a a response to uh, to issues of legal modernity and uh, and, and codification. And for Ottoman officials, uh, codification meant civilization, and they tried to centralize. The empire through this understanding. So, for example, they have this the Nizamiya court system in which the majella was applied, and as well as some Sharia courts as well. And the and the issue is the majority of the commentaries on the majella, the the reception of the majella, but the majority of Muslim jurists historically and today was very favorable of it. Uh, they saw that as a very good product to help judges to have uh, uh, a criteria by which that they can uh, that they can judge cases. Uh, not based on uh, their own personal discretion, for example. So, so, so the function of the Majel has to be understood in the context of the judicial reforms in the empire, not necessarily has to do with the madhahib and the nature of how the madhahib will work. Um, so, so, so that's in brief how I, and how I see the Majel. So, um, some arguments say, see codification in itself as a category that is colonial category that is in itself that is that is un-islamic that in itself should be should shouldn't be regarded as 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 uh, as worthy of of uh, of praise but the problem is that the uh, the, draft of, uh, the drafters of the majella themselves relied upon ibn al hanif al-masri and the legal maxims uh, tradition that exists in the Hanafi tradition to argue for the case, to make the case that we actually can come up with an Islamically informed code to help the centralization uh, uh, of the legal issues within the empire itself. Um, that's That looks pretty amazing, seeing um, the legal transformation in early early modern period and modern period. Um, the scholarship have, has diff- many different periodization um, for that. And um, l- reading your projects and listening to you um, gives the impression that actually there was one Hanafi tradition which was capable of evolving and transforming itself and adapting to the new situations rather than um, giving in um, to the encroachment of the Ottoman state, let's say, in the early modern period or to westernization. Um, by um, the mid-19th century. So that's a um, pretty interesting and very important contribution, um, which will have also its implications on the whole discussion of modernity and modernization in, in the Muslim world. I'm, I know that there, ha- there have been, about modernization, there have been many different arguments um, by some scholars like Colson that um, some of the Muslim, modern Muslim states like Pakistan, um, which is a Hanafi, majority Hanafi um, state, adopts opinions from other legal schools um, in order to serve the modern times. Mm-hmm. Um, and one example is about inheritance. 
and the inheritance of, let's say, a granddaughter uh, when your daughter has passed away, predeceased your granddaughter. So what? how would you divide your uh, estate? Mm. Um, and how that granddaughter would be probably a beneficiary of your estate or not. So like, according to the Hanafi law, you, you cannot, um, that granddaughter would not be entitled. So you argue that we don't see that in, in the Majala, right? Like we don't, Majala is absolutely and completely Hanafi project. Okay, that's a good question. So let me have a, a very brief interjection here. Okay, so uh, so in 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 my project, by by affirming and, and by arguing that the late Hanafism allowed certain role for the state in the legal discourse, uh, does not mean that I'm trying to justify the reality uh, that that the modern uh, that the majority of Muslim countries live in today, in which the state is the absolute source of law. That uh, the state uh, uh, is the sole authority for what is legal and what is not. This is completely alien to the how late Hanafi jurisprudence used to work. Uh, so this is number one. Number two, with regard to the transformations of the majal, that's a very important topic. There's, there's a lot of transformation that, uh, that we can see clearly in the majal. Number one, which is uh, Joseph Schacht, uh, uh, Joseph Schacht uh, uh, refers to this in his uh, famous introduction to Islamic law. Um, and in, in one of his footnotes, he mentioned that the Magellan, for the first time in Islamic history, that um, in issues of testimony in front of a judge, um, the the testimony of uh, a Muslim or non-Muslim would be acceptable because they define for the first time that the conditions for testimony is the person has to be hasanatuhu akthar min sayyati. He just to, to be a good person, not to be as such. Uh, uh, and no longer mention is of religion. Okay, so until Ibn Abidin, until he died in eighteen uh, uh, in the uh, uh, mid uh, mid nineteenth century, until Ibn Abidin, we used to have the condition. The condition is that witnesses has to be Muslim. Uh, with the majalla, uh, that, that that condition is no longer there. Number one. Number two, we can see other subtle uh, subtle differences. For the first time, for example, they define Hanafis in the classical uh, period, in the, in the sorry, in the in the formative period, and even in the Ottoman period. They used to define issues of um, al-ghasb, okay? Al-ghasb used to, to be in the Hanafi doctrine as someone who takes something from you uh, wrongfully, yeah, so to, uh, to wrongful appropriation of property, uh, but, but, what that, but that was not sufficient. He has to either sell or, uh, or do something in it. He just has to really uh, uh, show that he seized it by engaging and act in it. By sealing it, by uh, um, 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 so so, uh, and this was the opinion of Abu Hanifa and Muhammad Shaybani, which is the key authorities of the Madhab. Yet in the Majalla, we have a whole different discussion of about what is a wrongful appropriation, which is ghasb, which is taking someone, taking something from someone, which is considered has a value, and that's it. So the sheer seizure of property of somebody else. Now considered to be a husp uh, 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 in the Majella, which is a whole different concept that we can see in the in the in the formative period. Is that an example of ijtihad? Uh, that's an example of a change. Yes, uh, uh, that that those who participated and drafted the Majella were acting as actual participants in the Madhab, and they came up with a different opinion with regard to what the husp is. How was the um, commentaries written um, on the Majella react? 
to such transformations that came with the Majalla, regarding, for example, the testimony of a non-Muslim or the redefinition of Ghasp. So they don't talk about it. <laughs> this part of the, uh, so they don't talk about it. And again, uh, the Majalla is very highly is a highly uh, a complex text. You have really to be extremely familiar with the uh, with the Madhab itself, what the Madhab norms are. And this is massive. You really have to be yourself an, an actual mujtahid in the madhab, following the madhab to, to understand what's happening. Uh, so most of the commentaries on the on the majalla affirm two things: affirm the nature of, that, that that this majalla is authentic representation of the Hanafi school, number one, number two, and also affirm that the, that, that the majalla is very effective in the new emerging legal system in the empire, and we have to seize. Uh, see, see the opportunity to to make use of the Magella in other provinces, and it's still, uh, I think, applied until um, some of it today. So today, if you're going to be in Palestine to be Sharia judge in the in the Palestinian territories, you have to memorize the Magella till today. At least uh, the first 100 uh, article of Magella, you actually been tested in the Magella itself uh, to be uh, to be accepted as Sharia judge. Was the Magella really such a stark break with the past, or did did we see legislation moving in that direction anyway, like for what you just mentioned about the Ghazb? Did we see rulings moving in the direction of, of this more general definition, or was it, was it really a stark break? Okay, so um, people differ in this. Uh, uh, I think... Uh, uh, there was a, a, a realization that the future legislation will go to uh, for the, for 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 the, for uh, the direction in which the Magella is going, and uh, and as for a break with the past, it depends what what we mean by this. If we see the Magella as an alien form, it's not Islamic and has nothing to do with the Hanafis. Uh, uh, well, we'll have to we'll have to uh, to uh, to disagree on this issue. Uh, yes, in the ways in which the Magella as a genre itself is is new genre, um, but is it alien to what Hanafis are saying? Is it alien to the uh, to the norms of late Hanafism? Uh, this is uh, this is definitely not the case. They're very faithful to the late articulations of the Hanafi school, especially in the Ottoman period. And the Hanafis in the later period had really lots of uh, reconfiguration of major opinions in the school that the Magella came to uh, uh, came to preserve. Thank you, Sami, for being with us today and sharing your fascinating research. Uh, for those interested to find more about the topic, you can find our on our website a list of uh, Sami's work and a bibli- bibliography that he's provided. You can also refer to our Facebook page, um, where you can share and add your comments and questions about the topic. That's all for our podcast today, and thank you for tuning in. And we invite you to join us for next time.